going to jump into um, a discussion on the seven churches. We're going to actually discuss now the ch seven churches, and I'm going to do a small introduction on them. Um, and then I'm going to do a, um, a bullet point a bullet point thing on um, some things to keep in mind, and then we're going to talk about the church at Ephesus and Smyrna. All right? S-U-S. I forgot how to spell this. No. Okay, so we're going to try and get through both of these today. It's going to be frantic, which is typically the way my classes are. So, <laughs> All right, Ephesus and Smyrna, the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Um, so we've, we've done a pretty good uh, introductory um, couple of courses to get us ready, which is kind of the way that I like to do things because I like to preface and lay the groundwork for us to understand. But let's go over some things that we've already talked about. Uh, the revelation of John begins with the vision among the lampstands for the following reasons. The first reason has to do with mystery. Do you guys remember what we talked about with mystery? Why does Jesus, why does the, the what is the mystery of the church? This is important as we consider these things. Everything that we say from this point, I want you to be able to take and apply to the church as it exists now. Not just this church, but the church in its struggle against the beast from this point on. So everything that we're going to be discussing has to do with that. So what is the mystery of the churches that we spoke about? And this is important when you consider the individual churches. We spoke about the mystery last week. Anybody remember? Well, that's, it goes along with that. But Christ what? Christ, well, again, there you go. Christ ruling in the midst of a adjective. Weak, a weak church, okay? So that's the paradox. Christ on the cross to the Greek foolishness. To the Jews, a stumbling block, ludicrous, right? Christ ruling among the churches, weak, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, fickle, compromised, um, by all accounts in the world, weak and, and um, uh, insignificant, thank you. So that's the mystery. That's what I want to keep in mind because Jesus addresses these things to each of the lampstands and he brings them back to who he is and who, what he is among the lampstands. So those are important things. The second is that the book of Revelation is predominantly about what? Don't say future events. It is predominantly about Christ. Again, elaborate further. Christ doing what? Christ victorious and Christ and the gospel, and what is the gospel about? It's a word that we never use in the church because we're phobic of it. We don't like this word. Well, we don't like that one either. <laughs> Judgment. 
Well, I don't know, but this is something you never hear talked about very often in, in evangel- evangelical churches, Problem, probably because there's this, uh, this idea that because Jesus has died on the cross, the church avoids judgment, okay? That is a wrong statement. The gospel predominantly has to do with two things. What are they? The redemption of fallen creation And then there is a flip side to that coin, the judgment and the setting aright of the things that are not, that that are fallen. So not only is there redemption, there's judgment. The two are are, are different sides of the same coin, and we don't like this word, but what what revelation is, is it's God's judgment, God's setting aright through Jesus Christ of the things that have occurred through, through the... Uh, through fall, the sin and, and the fall, right? So, and this judgment begins with who? The house of God. And so, to, at the very beginning, Revelation begins by Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands, setting aright the things that are out of order. Okay? And he does so because he cares for us. If you're not disciplined you are a what an illegitimate child so he disciplines those he loves and so he stands among the lampstands and so when when you when we read the different things about the churches (laughs) it's okay kevin they didn't hear it on the on the tape (laughs) Uh, when we read the read the the rebukes by jesus for the churches we have to keep in mind that this is done for perseverance and preservation reasons. Okay? When Jesus comes to you individually and he says, let me compliment you on these things. You're doing these things well, but I have this against you. Do you retreat back into yourself? Run and hide? Grab a fig leaf? What, what do you do? That's what we do, and we do so with open arms and face upturned, right? Americans don't like that concept, and they automatically equate failure with that. That's not failure. It's correction. And so this is what's going on in the churches, and we have to keep that in mind. Um, Thirdly, Revelation has to do with the interadvental period. And so when we read about the seven churches, we're not just reading about one church. We're reading about the church as a whole. And it's important for us to keep those things in mind. And I want you to, what I said last week is very important as we go through the churches. I think that the current philosophy in, or the current hermeneutic in America, the way that we read Revelation, has done the church a gross, gross disservice. Because... Revelation actually paints a picture of everything that the, that the, especially the New Testament talks about. So, and here's a good example of it. So, thirdly, the church has to, the Revelation has to do with the interadvent, interadvental period. So, which is, interestingly enough, called the what? The church age. Okay. Revela- uh, so, um, and it spans... The initiation of the gospel, seen in the vision of Christ breaking the seals on the scroll in chapter 5. That's a wrong thing. And its consummation, um, which is the new creation 
the heavenly jubilee pictured in chapters 21 and 22. It is during this age that God is continuing his work of redemption initiated by Christ through the church. The age has to do with the kingdom of God. And this is, this is why what Maddie's teaching, uh, what, what Maddie and Rick are teaching right now is so important. Revelation has to do with the conflict of kingdoms. That's what Revelation is about. Okay? So when you hear Maddie and Rick on Sunday mornings talk about kingdoms and conflict and the kingdom of God, you have to understand that Revelation is giving you an actual visual of what they're talking about. Okay? Um, it was by the death and resurrection of Christ that the decisive victory was won, because we know this in John 12, 31. Now, the judgment of this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be what? Cast out. And Jesus is saying that in John 12, when he's talking to his disciples just before he goes and is crucified. Nevertheless, the battle continues to be waged as Jesus draws all those who have been sealed to himself. And this is when I am lifted up, I will what? Draw men to me. All right? Um, so see how the, what is said in the rest of the, the Bible starts to make sense now that you read Revelation. Christ then continues his assault on the kingdom of darkness by means of his witness of himself through the church. That's why the lampstands is so important because by the light of the Holy Spirit on the individual church, we witness to Jesus Christ in a dark world. That is something that the darkness hates. John 1, right? Um, according, accordingly, Jesus said, now this is the key in our Advental period, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the kingdom conflict that we're talking about in Revelation. So all of these scriptures start to tie into what, is, what John is seeing or what uh, through what Jesus is revealing to him. All right, finally, um, as we read these things, we have to re remember that these individual messages were not the only things that were read to the churches. So the guy who was bringing the book of Revelation, John, John's writings to the church, just didn't go, hey, I got a paragraph here for you. He read the whole thing. All right? So can you imagine sitting in Ephesus and hearing what uh, Pergamum's doing? What? Well, we're not doing that. Uh, no. And finally, as we will see when we look specifically at the church in Philadelphia, the church is only able to function in its capacity when she remains pure. And that's why there's such an emphasis today on right doctrine, on right, right living, because out of compromise, Jesus rebukes each one of the, the, the churches. He rebukes five. He exhorts six. There's only one that is not, does not receive a rebuke or an exhortation, and that's the church in Philadelphia. And it's said that they are, they are given an open door by God that no man can shut. And that has to do with the kingdom of God, and we'll see that later on. Um, all right, let's talk about letter overview. Letter, there is a pattern to the letters. The letters are addressed to the church, church's representative angel. 
Apparently to remind the churches that we spoke of last time, what did we say the stars were? But what? I mean, there's two representations. You have the candle, the, the lampstand. Yeah, and then you have the churches in heaven. So there's, there's a, uh, so Jesus reminds the churches um, by addressing their angel. Apparently, as far as I can tell by what the accumulative understanding of this is, is that their primary existence is established already as a spiritual reality, and that is where their help comes from. That their spiritual reality in heaven is already established, that, that, that Jesus holds them in, in, in his hands. So this is a reminder that they are secure and that their help is of a heavenly nature. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Two, Christ presents himself with certain attributes particularly applicable to the situation of the church addressed. That's an important thing. So he will say, I am the first and the last. I was dead, yet I'm now alive. And interestingly enough, he says that to the Smyrna church because they were about to be martyred. Okay? Um... On the basis of what was going on in the church, Christ either issues an encouragement to persevere or to repent in order to avoid judgment. This forms the grounds for Christ issuing a call for the churches to respond by heeding the encouragement or heeding the ex exhortation. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. On the basis of a positive response, Christ promises the inheritance of eternal life. And every one of the promises has to do with eternal life in the new creation. It's just worded in different ways. I will let you eat from the tree. I will give you a crown of life. All right? Um, and this is the main point of each letter, that the promise of eternal life with Christ in the new creation. All right, the seven churches fall into three categories. The first and the last, Ephesus and Laodicea, are in desperate spiritual danger. Desperate. Being loveless and being apathetic are two things that will ruin your witness. And we'll see that in a minute. Okay. The middle three, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, uh, have in varying degrees some who have remained faithful and others who are compromised. These churches are exhorted to purge the compromise from themselves in order to avoid judgment on those who are compromised. All right. It's only the second and the sixth Smyrna in Philadelphia that have proven themselves faithful in the face of severe persecution. And even though, even though they are poor and have little power. The letters then deal with the theme of faithfulness to Christ and perseverance in the midst of relentless. Now hear the word, relentless. Pagan culture that threatens from within and without. It is those who overcome that will inherit the promise made and realize chapters 21 and 22, okay? Everybody good with all that? So those, that's a quick overview. We're going to jump in now to the Ephesian church. The way I'm going to lay this out is I'm going to give you a bit of history at the church. I'm going to give you a bit of the uh, history of the church, a history of the city, 
We'll talk about the different aspects of what was said to, the, to that individual church, but I want you to keep in mind that this is a statement to us now, okay? So Ephesians. Anybody want to be... Isn't it Ephesus? I know. So. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, um. I thought I was having a stroke. <laughs> Wait, I can't think. All right. Somebody want to read the text for me real quick? Two, one through, I think it's nine. Just to get us a quick overview. Anybody have it handy? Or do you want me to do it real fast? All right. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Well, that sounds good. But, I have this against you, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, and here's the kicker, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. Let's talk about the city real quick. All right. Ephesus was situated on the Aegean Gulf near the mouth of the Keister River. And it was this river that actually caused a major problem with the city and brought it low because the Keister kept throwing algae into their port and it finally clogged the port, believe it or not. Uh, it formed part of the Roman province of Asia when it was founded in 133 BC, but it was not the capital. During the first century, it had the most important seaport in all the region and was easily accessible by land and was therefore the commercial center of all Asia boasting a population of a quarter million people, 250,000 people. Rome granted Ephesus self-governing status, and it was the place where justice was dispensed by the proconsul. The city was famous for its marketplace and massive theater, the latter of which overlooked the harbor and could accommodate a crowd at any given time of 25,000. Big place. Okay. It was also, and this is very key to what we're going to be talking about, it was also a religious center. It was the home of the mother goddess Artemis or Diana. And Acts 19 tells us all about that. Whose temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. How many of you have seen the Parthenon? Greek Parthenon. No? Seen pictures of it? All right, there you go. Sorry, I was not granular enough. Um, the uh, temple to Diana was four times the size 
of the Parthenon. It was massive. Uh, the citizens of Ephesus were fanatically devoted to the goddess. And we know that because Paul created quite a stir by creating an economic hardship for those who sold. Now, this is interesting, and I want you to keep this in mind. What did the economy of Ephesus orient around? Pagan idolatry. What does Revelation 13 tell us about those who do not take the mark? They cannot buy or sell. So Ephesus had this issue. Because of their economy, based on a pagan culture, those who did not subscribe to that pagan culture were restricted in what they could do. Not because they went out and said, you can't buy or sell, but because, by definition, there was great restriction upon them. Okay? Um, the citizens were, of Ephesus were fanatically devoted to the goddess and revered her image, which was reportedly reputed to have fallen from the heavens. All right? Uh, at the same time, the temple was a treasury house, a museum, and a place of sanctuary for criminals. So the entire society really oriented around this particular type of uh, idolatry. Um, There you go. It was a sanctuary city. This temple also became the site of the worship of the goddess Roma. Dea Roma. That's, that's going to be uh, uh, important to keep in mind as we talk about the churches. The worship of the goddess of Rome. All right? Especially when we get to Smyrna. And the worship of the, the, the Roman cult worship of the, of the emperor. All right. So this was also going on, and it oriented also around the Temple of Diana. Uh, the Asiarchs, you ever heard of those guys? They're in the Bible. In Acts 19.31, I didn't. I had to go look it up. <laughs> yeah. They were the, men, the foremost men of the city from whose ranks were selected annually the high priests of the cult of, of Rome. All right. The city was also the home of numerous superstitious practices and was famous throughout the world for its magical arts. So we're talking about a very, very religious, pagan religious culture, all right? Fanatically devoted. The church, Paul visited this city on his way from Corinth to Jerusalem during his second missionary journey in AD 52. He left Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus, and it was here that Apollos taught. Uh, during his third missionary journey, Paul spent three years here in Acts 20. Ephesus became a kind of headquarters for the evangelism of the whole of Asia Minor. So it was from Ephesus, which was situated at the lower part of the Aegean. So Smyrna's up here and then Pergamum, and they actually formed kind of a circle. And Paul, and Paul started... From Ephesus, and he kind of branched out in all these different directions. So Ephesus was basically the hub from which Asia Minor was evangelized. Okay? Uh, the original converts at Ephesus had been zealous witnesses and had given up all connection with their old practices, often at considerable personal expense. 
When I read that, I was thinking, what have I given up? Really, what, what have I done? I mean, these guys gave up their economic status, their social status. A lot of them had their properties confiscated. What have I given up? So it was a good refresher for me. Upon his release from prison, Paul undoubtedly made additional visits to Ephesus and eventually left Timothy in charge of the church. It was in A.D. 66 that John made his way to Ephesus. Now, you guys have to know this, that John was intimately related with the church at Ephesus. Intimately. John made his first visit to Ephesus in A.D. 66, and it was from there that he was banished to Patmos. Um... Tradition relates that after his banishment, John returned to Ephesus and being very old would be carried in by the, 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 the men of the church to deliver his weekly admonition. Anybody know what it was? That he couldn't walk anymore. Every week he would, and this is very interesting that he would say this to a church that lost its first love. Every week he was brought in and he would say this, little children love one another. That's what tradition holds. The church here was more than 40 years old then when this letter in Revelation was written and the first generations of believers had been replaced by a second less zealous generation. So there's your background, okay? I didn't go into a whole lot of detail, but I gave you some basic overviews. Okay, the letter. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the lampstands. That's the introduction. Christ reminds the Ephesian church of his sovereignty over their position and, in fact, over all the lampstands. God is sovereign over his church. Okay? This becomes important because the stated consequence of their failure to heed his exhortation will be the removal of their lampstand. And, and its removal will be done by the one who is sovereign to do so. The phrase, who walks among the lampstands, reminds the church that he is intimately aware of everything that concerns her. So that Jesus is in the midst of the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. And he has eyes that are like lightning. So he's always intimately aware of everything that not only affects his church at large, this church, and you as an individual. He is intimately aware because of his place in and among us. That's important to understand. That's what, that's what Jesus is wanting Ephesians to know, the Ephesians to know. I've never left you. I've been right here the whole time. I know exactly where you're at, and I know your motives, and I know your heart. And that's what he says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. And you also have this, by the way, that you hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, or the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So that's their affirmation. They're bearing up. They're doing amazing work, actually to the point of being, of toiling, which is an interesting statement. They're testing spirits. They're true to the gospel. They're finding those who are bringing false doctrine in among the church. 
including the Nicolaitans. That sounds good, right? How many of you would agree? Those are important things. And so when we, we talk about what Jesus says as judgment against the church, we have to keep in mind that he says this is good. So we don't want to dispense with this or, or think that this is a, a, a reason why they, were, why they were rebuked. This is something that, that Jesus finds as, um, as, as a good thing among them, all right? So the, the word indicates that the Ephesians were not, the, not characterized by cold, dead intellectualism. All right? So that's a lot of times what happens by those who emphasize sound doctrine. They kind of become dead inside. That's, that's one of the major charges against the Reformed theology. People outside Reformed theology will say, you guys are just intellectual dead people. Right? Everything is reduced to format, function, and, and right doctrine. That is something that can happen. That is, there is a danger there. Ephesus. However, because of the context, it appears that the bulk of their fervor, their hard work, their toil, was internally focused on maintaining doctrinal purity. Here's the rub. What was the church earlier when, when Paul first founded it? What do we say here? They were a hub, externally focused. Their zeal was where? Outward. What does this constant vigilance to remain pure in doctrine indicate? They turned inward. All right? So the, the word toil here is kapon in the Greek, and it actually means hard labor and gives description to the intensity of their efforts to this end. They were intensely scrupulous about doctrine. Nobody came in among them that was wrong. And I think that this probably spilled over into their daily lives as well. But what does this have a tendency to do when you're amazingly focused on right doctrine? What was that? Separate you? Become critical. Yeah, become critical. Even on yourself. So what happens when you become self-focused? It's right. So can you think of a group of people in the, in the New Testament that had this issue? Anybody? New Testament people that kind of had the same issue, focused on right doctrine? Very, very rigid in the way that they conducted themselves and consequently on the way that everybody else was to conduct themselves. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were very proud of their doctrine. They did not budge on sound doctrine. And Jesus didn't like them much, did he? So... Anyway, I know your patient endurance that you have bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. Jesus does commend them for their efforts toward these things and here acknowledges that he knows their efforts are difficult and often exhausting and yet they continue to remain unwavering. So I don't want you again to, to understand that Jesus is saying that your, that your 
adherence to right doctrine is in any way a wrong thing. It is commendable. That's what Jesus is saying. And I know that you cannot bear up uh, with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, what is this a reference to? Who are false apostles? Anybody know? Well, we'll get to that in a second. This speaks of a problem that we have in the church right now. And since we're talking about the church universal, I'll say this as bluntly as I can. Most people don't know sound doctrine well enough to know when somebody comes in and teaches it wrongly. They don't. Herman uh, uh, Hoeksema commented on this in one of the commentaries. and He said this, where knowledge of the truth is lacking, the church is helplessly exposed to every wind of doctrine. This is one of the main reasons that the church of today is in such a, he says, miserable condition. There is no knowledge of the truth, no love for true doctrine, no instruction on the word of God. Hence, the church today is easily seduced, tossed about by all kinds of false teachings. This was not the case in Ephesus. And the Lord among the candlesticks commended them for it. So what he's saying here is that you guys are able to test those who come in among you, which implies that you know the, the word well enough to stand up and say, that's not right. That's false teaching. It also speaks of the intolerance to false doctrine. Bringing those who are, who are propagating false doctrine among the sheep, coming to them and saying, no, you cannot do that. You will not do that. So false apostles were probably itinerant false teachers. Probably Jewish. Probably Judaizers. Who arrogated to themselves apostolic authority for the sake of gaining prestige for some, time, some type of material gain. Okay? So the church had this issue where Judaizers would roam from church to church and come in and, and speak false doctrine. And the Ephesians knew well enough when those were present. Yes. I'm not interrupting. I had a thought. But okay. Yeah, that's fine. I'm at a stopping spot. I was thinking about uh, um, their zeal for right doctrine might have been the result of being in a city that, was, that had been previously so filled with idolatry and, and a, a pagan belief system. And that that when you, you know, find yourself in a culture that is propagating the lie, it would cause you to become more aware of, of the fact of the need for the truth. Yeah. And I think that that's, I, think, I mean, we are living in a city that, you know, there's a lot of diverse thinking and a lot of different things being taught that I think have, I will speak for myself, caused me to be more zealous than I might have been if I lived in Colorado Springs. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so I think that is a warning of the, the fact that we can be set up by the enemy almost in our zeal to go beyond what would be the heart of God. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a really good point. And I didn't make that connection in my notes, but I think it's, it's noteworthy that the, the probability was that they had to be on guard so much because of the, 
the consistent philosophical ideology that barraged them, that they became, that they, they kind of built a wall and said, no, you know, we, we have to safeguard this sound doctrine. And it, it goes beyond what Rick just said, what the Lord had intended. Yes, we want to safeguard sound doctrine, but we don't want to build a wall. Okay? So, let's talk about the Nicolaitans because they pop up again later on. Anybody know anything about the Nicolaitans? Oh, I heard a yes. Go for it. Self-indulgent people. Uh, it came from, they thought, two places. One might be a leader in the church named Nicholas. Yeah. Who brought them through into the, uh, back into idolatry, um, back into sacrificing to idols, back into mixing that which was Christian and that which was not yep. Christian. Yep. Um, the other uh, avenue was the Greek word Nicola, which means let us eat. So it was basically the whole thing of feasting and mm -hmm. self-indulgent yep. and hedonism yep. and pleasure and yep. all that. Yep. So. so that is correct. Okay. Huh? So we'll just go right on from there. Um. The, I'll just give you the points that I have. This is correct, but I want you to get to a point here. I want you to understand something about them. The name literally means conquerors of the people. Nicolaitans actually means conquerors of the people, and the people there actually means the laity. Um, the, the little is known of the sect. We do know that from the passages in Revelation that uh, it can be inferred that they were of a false premise, uh, permissive doctrine that encouraged compromise with the world just as Kevin said they are referred to again in the message to Pergamum where they are named in relation to those who are adhering to what teaching Balaam anybody remember who Balaam was he was a false prophet who caused Israel to stumble yeah so it could be assumed then that the two are very similar. Balaam is responsible for Israel's harlotry with the Moabite women and the idolatry in Numbers 25. Uh, Balaam was, uh, according to many then commentators, is seen, and here's the word, as the father of syncretism. A blending of religions. All right. That's why Ephesus really disliked the Nicolaitans like they did. Because it was a compromise of gospel. It was a watering down of the gospel. Their teaching probably emphasized the idea of participating in the world under the guise of becoming more effective by becoming more relevant. Or of being more inclusive by being more permissive. Well, those sound familiar. You got to go along to get along. Be friends with the world. Participate in what they're doing. You can be effect, much more effective witness if you really get a sense of what they're involved in. How about this one? Well, we can't really put up barriers against that particular thing because we know these poor people are born this way. Blend. The systems of the beast with the doctrines of God. That's syncretism. 
It sounds innocent, but that is exactly what it is. It's including what the beast says. It's alternative to righteousness. It's including the, the beast into the church. It's saying, please, come in. Let's blend this together. That's the Nicolaitan doctrine. William Barclay says this, the Nicolaitans were not prepared to be different. Are you? That's the question that I have to ask. Barclay said that the, that the Ephesians were not prepared to be different, or the Nicolaitans were not prepared to be different. And my question is, are we? They were the most, listen to this, they were the most dangerous of all heretics from a particular point of view. For if their teaching had been successful, here's the key, the world would have changed Christianity and not Christianity the world. And it's subtle. All right? Now, the Ephesians did good at standing against the syncretistic idea. Syncratic idea, I guess is the way you say it. But then we come to the rebuke. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Okay, this, one, this one's hard, and this one's going to take some, some self-analyzing. It did for me. I spent a great deal of time pondering these things. I guess this is the point that I want to bring out. I think, I think in every one of these instances, we need to consider these things. Despite all of the accolades previously given, all their doctrinal knowledge and vigilance, all of their works and toil for the sake of the gospel, preserving the gospel, the church was in danger of losing its witness because they had lost the passion for the message of the gospel. They had lost their first love. Well, I, no, I think that they, so here's, here's what I think. I haven't found any commentators that are willing to just go out and say this point blank, but here's what I think. I think that they, they, they were commended for, for struggling for the namesake of Jesus. So here's what I think. I think that in their zeal, for the preservation of the gospel, which was an internal focus, I believe that they felt like that they were holding the name of Christ rightly. And I think they were. And I think Jesus says that they were. But I think what was happening was that this, was, this became duty-oriented. This became something that they felt like that they had to do, that it was their responsibility. And over the course of time, they began to lose the truth of why they were doing it. Simply because I have a passion for Jesus Christ. Now, when you have, here's something that we don't teach in the church, and this is something that grieves my heart that we do this. We do not teach that the vertical relationship that we have has a horizontal aspect to it that is just as covenantally strong. That when you are saved into Christ Jesus, you are saved not as an individual, but you're saved into a body. And therefore, your connection with one another in this room is as strong as it is vertically. 
And we play around with that covenant like, I don't really need to be this way. I don't really have to be a, hang out with you. I can do whatever. I don't need the church. I can be a Christian on my own. And you cannot, I am telling you, you cannot do that. You are blowing the whole covenant when you do that. I am as intimately related to Rick and Kathy as I am to Jesus Christ. Because they are the body of Christ with me. They are my brothers and sisters. And for me to disregard them and disregard their condition and not care about them and say I don't really need to be involved is to say that I really don't need to be involved with Jesus. I'm just telling you the, the way that it is. And we live in this space where I'm a Christian but I don't need you. You are then emasculating yourself as a, a believer. I'm just telling you right up front. Your witness is diminished. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By what? The love that I have for Jesus Christ. No. By the love that I have for you guys. That is my what? Witness. That's my light. It's the way I reveal Jesus Christ. And when that diminishes and I take that away from you and I say, I don't have to be concerned about you. I'm a Christian by myself. My witness on my lampstand goes out. And people get this idea that, oh, you're just being legalistic. I'm not. I'm being gospel. I'm being covenantal. We've lost that community sense in, in America. We had no idea what that means. We come and go as we want. We're as individual as we can be. And we say we love Jesus. Little children, if you say you love God and do not love your brother, the truth is not in you. That what happened was that when they became in, inward focused, their zeal outwardly became diminished. They became pharisaical in their concept. It became more of a, hey, brother, are you compromising? Hey, brother, instead of the idea of witnessing and being in love with one another passionately and love for the lost, okay? Well, uh, I'll say that that's what John says in his first epistle. His first epistle. If you say you love the Lord and, and you do not love one another, you what? You lie, that's right. Okay? So, I have this against you that you've abandoned your first love. Yes. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That word first there, love, is also translated best in Luke. Yeah. That's a good point. And it is. It is a better love because it's based on passion, not duty. Okay? So there's a difference between doing something because you're required to and doing something because you love what you're doing or you love the person you're doing it for. Am I right? And those of you who've been married know that. Do we work, toil, and struggle for Jesus because we have to or do we do it because of our best love? Because he first loved us.
okay? So, a passionate love for Christ necessitates a love for mankind. Losing the first love for Christ caused them to lose their zeal uh, of their outward witness. Jesus warns of this in uh, the very thing in Matthew 24. And he says this, And because of lawlessness, or the increase of law- lawlessness, what will grow cold? The love of most will grow cold. But the one who, in- and see, listen, listen to his language in Matthew 24. Does this not sound like revelation? But he who endures till the end will be saved. That's exactly what he's saying to, to the Ephesians. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. So see how he ties this idea of the loss of love right into evangelism? Listen to this. Let's read the whole thing together. But because of the lawlessness will, it, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You see how it's all encapsulated into, into one statement? Because of the, the increase of wickedness, because of the increase of the, the, the beast kingdom and its influence into the, to the church, the love of most will grow cold. But he who endures till the end, he who holds his first love, will be saved. And by them, this gospel will be proclaimed to, throughout the whole world. Why? Because they maintain their first love. Okay? It's also con- considered that those who uh, strive for doctrinal pur- purity also have little compassion for those who feel they feel are compromised by different doctrinal positions. Okay? When we lose our love, we don't have compassion for people that are caught up in things. You who are spiritual, restore those who, f- who are caught up in things, right? Do so with the understanding that, except for the grace of God, that's me. Okay? All right. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The word here is in the present imperative, which has a sense of continuation. Continually remember is the idea. Continually keep in mind your first love. Continually remember the things that I've saved you from. Continually remember from the depths that I've raised you out of. Continually keep those things in mind. The word repent here means to uh, clean, a clean break from. Um, the, the, this repent is clearly directed at the idea of losing your first love, uh, but must also include consistent remembering. So it's, it's also repent from forgetting, right? How many of you have lost touch with what God has brought you from? Re-embrace those things. Um, they were uh, encouraged to remember the works that they had done in past, a reference to the days in which their entire province of Asia heard the message of the gospel through them and Paul. There's a difference between those works and the works that they were engaged in now. He says, your works are good now, but I have this against you. Remember the works you used to do. So there's a difference in the works. And again, I think it it has to do with the motivation that they come from. One is internal. 
keeping a hold of what, the, 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 what we've already gained. The other is external, willing to take further. Does that make sense? So let me read these things real quick. The motivation of the work, the first is easy labor of love generated from outside of themselves, while the second has the toil of duty generated from within themselves. The first were works of love outwardly directed, whereas the second were efforts of judgment and vigilance directed inward. The first were more offensive outward in nature, taking it to the world, assaulting the kingdom of the beast with the truth of the gospel, whereas the second were more defensive in nature. The first is taking ground. The second is more concerned with defending what has already been taken. All right? Do these things or I will come and remove your lampstand. Here's a good example in Zechariah. Israel had been a lampstand, but when they failed in their call to be a light to the nations, their lampstand was removed and the church assumed the role as true Israel. The primary witnesses uh, of the lampstand is, uh, is made clear, um, is a prophetic witness. So you lose your prophetic witness when you lose your first love. Okay? So I've got to stop. Um, I had some scriptures and I've already read some of them but listen to this one this is one I'll close on if I speak in the tongue of men and angels but have not love what am I? noisy gong or clanging cymbal if I prophesy and have all prophetic powers and understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love. I have nothing. I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And this is a picture of the Ephesian church. They were prophetically sound. They gave up their goods, their bodies, many of them. And they didn't have love, and it accounted to them as nothing. All right? So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the church is saying, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So, if the Lord speaks to you by this, so be it. But the, I think the message to the Ephesian church is, do not lose your first love. Go and do the things that you used to do. Remember from the depths that I have drawn you out of. Have that passionate love for me that goes out beyond yourself. Turn yourself once again outward for my name's sake. Lest I come and remove your lampstand from its place. Okay? It's a message to the Ephesians. We didn't get to the Smyrnans. It's the shortest of all of them. But the word to them is simply do not fear. Do not fear, okay? Father, we're grateful. We ask that you would restore to us our first love, that you would keep that fire lit, that you would remind us continually that this is not about what we know, but this is about what you've done. And help us, Jesus, to be a light to this 
community by the love that we have for one another. Amen.